You're listening to Very Loose Women. Good evening, listeners. You are tuned in to Very Loose Women. My name is Florrie, and I'm joined in the studio by my wonderful co-hosts, Leo and Soy. And in the studio, we have Very Loose Women, Funbi, who has co-produced today's show with me. Hello, Funbi. Hi. And in our midst, we have Nikki from the Very Loose Women team as well. Hello, Hi. Nikki. <laughs> and today, we have some excellent guests in the studio. We have human rights and secularism campaigner, Gita Sagal. <laughs> comedian Sadia Azmats, feminist historian Dr. Charlotte Riley, and playwright Carmen Nazar. Hello, everybody. Hey! Hi. Welcome. So many people <laughs> We have a very full studio. Now, listeners, you might be thinking, what's going on? Didn't we hear from you lot already this week? This is an extra, very special edition of the show brought to you because it's International Women's Day. Also, I want to send mm. some love and solidarity out to all of the women and non-binary people striking today all over the world. If you'd like to find out what strike activities are going on here and in the UK, go to womenstrike.org. Org.uk. For the meat of the show, we are in celebration of International Women's Day. We are going to be talking about iconic women. We'll be sharing with you the women who've inspired and influenced us throughout our lives and looking at the complicated relationship women still have with the public sphere. So, we thought it would make sense to start off by doing a bit of history. Um, we're going to start with Charlotte. So historically, the representation of women has been confined to the private or domestic sphere. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Um, yes. So basically, in the 19th century, increasingly in Britain, there is the sense that women and men have fundamentally different roles. And the idea is that um, men and women aren't necessarily, there's not necessarily a hierarchy between them, but they just have different uh, kind of strengths. And the idea is that men should be out in the public sphere, which is dangerous and dirty and corrupting. They should be doing politics, they should be doing industry and business. And women should be in the domestic space, where they can be kind of moral authorities, where they can raise children and where they can kind of keep the, uh, the home ticking over. Um, and that's very much, in the 19th century, very much an aspiration for families. Um, and it's a very middle-class value to have a wife who stays at home um, and who kind of does womanly pursuits, so things like embroidery or playing the piano or reading novels and writing letters and that sort of thing. Mm. And how has this changed throughout history? Do we see any of that in today's portrayal of women and representation of women? So I think... I mean, women kind of push against this quite a lot. And it's worth pointing out as well that, for example, like working class women have always worked. They've either worked in the home um, or they've worked outside of the home. And so that aspiration was not actually as, as uniform as we might assume. Um, women kind of push against it in different ways. So they campaign for access to university education or for the right to work um, and for the right to have kind of public roles and, of course, for political rights. Um, I think it has really... It, it still kind of lingers in certain ways. So, for example, the idea that women are primarily wives and mothers, um, even politicians, kind of female politicians are often asked about their children a lot, for example. Um, female politicians have to um, put up with questions about their clothing, um, ideas about um, 
kind of the the wives of male politicians are expected to behave in certain ways. Um, you know, the idea that Nick Clegg's wife was always kind of critiqued for not taking his name. Um, Yvette Cooper, for example, is called Mrs. Balls by right wing media mm. because of that sense so of like. Gross. Yeah, it's really creepy. Mm. Um, but that sense of like, she's an independent woman and she shouldn't be sort of thing. I also wanted to ask you, Charlotte, who are your favourite historical women and why? Uh, <laughs> it's quite a big yeah. question. Yeah, yeah um, I guess we're all historical to a certain extent. Yeah, women in history is a hard question because it's, it's like all women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, so the women that I uh, I spent today teaching women's history to my brilliant first year students and we were looking at the suffragettes um, and I have a soft spot for Sylvia Pankhurst. Uh, she's a suffragette but she's also a socialist. Um, she sets up the East London um, feminist movement where she's kind of providing things like food kitchens for um, poor working class women, for example, when their husbands go away and fight in the First World War and then she runs away to Ethiopia. So I have a soft spot for Sylvia Pankhurst. How, and also I wanted to ask you, how did you get into studying history and, and how did you get into studying it from a feminist perspective? I guess I, I really liked history at school and I really liked the fact that it's basically just stories. Like it's stories that are true, but it's still basically stories. Um, and I went to uni and did a history degree and I had a really inspirational um, dissertation supervisor called Cathy Burke and I ended up doing my PhD with her. Um, and she works in kind of foreign policy history, which is not very female and there are not very many women who work in it. Um, so it was really nice to have a female kind of mentor in a space that's mostly male mm. um so I kind of got into that from perspective and I'm a feminist historian because I am a feminist and it would be really hard for me to leave that kind oh, of leave yeah. that outside mm. the library when I go in so I have to kind of take that with me so that's just how I do how I do my work brilliant what about everybody else has anyone got any uh famous historical female figures they want to talk about yes Gita hello Hi, um, I'm so happy to be here. And actually, before I talk about historical figures, I want to say how I love your title, Very Loose Women. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to remember, it's almost historical because it was quite a few years ago, there were women in um, a, s a southern city, Bengaluru, uh, which is actually a, a very modern city in India, um, you know, full of uh, IT people and so on. And they were drinking in a pub and they were broken up by Hindu fundamentalist protesters who attacked them. The same people who are attacking uh, minorities in India and rationalists, you know, Muslims, Christians, rationalists and free thinkers. So this was some years ago. Um, they attacked these women for drinking in the pub and the women just responded by forming a coalition of pub going loose and forward women. Excellent. <laughs> and they sent pink underpants to the, the Hindu fundamentalists to attack them as a gesture wow. of peace and that's love. That's so good. <laughs> oh my God. That's so that's brilliant. one example. But I want to go back to the it's 70 years this year, or last year, in December uh, last year, of the founding of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And people think of uh, the founding of the UN and the founding of what's called the UDHR, the Declaration, as something that was done by the Western powers after the war. And I want to recall the forgotten history of the huge coalition of black and Asians who uh, got together in order to argue for the rights of all peoples, including peoples living under colonialism, and um, uh, various, you know, the empire was still very strong at that time. And there were Indian women who were involved with that. My grandmother, Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, was one of them. Wow. Uh, she was camping in the lobby. She wasn't an official delegate. She was sort of raising her voice when India was still under colonial rule uh, about imperialism. She was backed by a coalition of the 
um, uh, black Americans who were looking to this body to free them from the racial segregation they suffered. And when the, uh, when the Universal Declaration was being negotiated, there were Indian and Pakistani women at the table um, because they had by then had been uh, become independent. And there was a woman called Hansa Mehta who was responsible for uh, putting in place um, the, the words, all human beings are equal in dignity and rights, because wow, they're going to say so all men. Important. And she said, if you say all men, mm. they'll think it is all men. They will not include women. You have to include women. And she also got in a clause on the right to choice in marriage and um, marriage at full age. And the, these are things that women have been fighting for ever since. They've been fighting against um, forced marriage, arranged marriage, child marriage, polygamy, and so on. And she put that in. And, and the Pakistani delegate, Begum Ikramullah, also supported that right to choice in marriage. And it was also a blow against racial segregation because at that time, of course, marriage was not allowed in the US. Uh, interracial marriage was not allowed. It was illegal. So this right to choice in marriage without due regard, without any restriction on religion or caste or anything like that was actually a blow against you know, all forms of discrimination, casteism, racism, and so on. So it's an incredibly important thing. And I think we really need to remember that and know more about it. Uh, absolutely fascinating. And how amazing to have that as a family, a family connection that you can talk about so passionately. And with that experience, I think that's really amazing. Um, does anybody else have any historical women they want to talk about? Or should we do in the next question? Is everyone all right? Okay, everyone's like, <laughs> I can't say anything. Okay, that's okay. Um, Fumbi, you had a question for Gita, didn't you? Yeah, it's really interesting you talk about forgotten history. Because um, I feel a lot of women activists seem to be forgotten in like the more universal history we learn in either the Western world or even um, in where I'm from, Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Women activists seem to be omitted from the general narrative. Um, and I guess I want to talk to you about how you got into activism and um, what kind of activism do you do? Gosh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well we can start Quite with the first old question. <laughs> so I've been around for a long time. I got into activism. Um, you know, I wasn't a feminist when I was at university. I was at uni here in, in England, and my political activity was more about uh, confronting the National Front and those sorts of things. There was a lot of uh, racism on the mm. streets, which, of course, we see rising again today. Um, but when I went back to India, that was when that generation of second wave feminism was starting. And of course, when we started looking at our history, we actually knew that our foremothers had done a hell of a lot before us. So, but we were talking about dowry murders, about rape, and we were very aware that rape is a, is a caste issue as well. Um, uh, and so there were national demonstrations organized. There were uh, women's groups set up that started supporting women who were trying to leave violent families and things like that. So that was the origin of my activism, which continued when I came to England and um, joined South Hall Black Sisters, uh, which, of course, was a, a, at that time a small uh, group of Asian Afro-Caribbean women who were both confronting racism including the racism of immigration laws. And sadly, of course, they still are, and we still have to fight the hostile environment. Uh, but they're also confronting sexism within their own communities and the failure of the broader movements to actually look at this complicated dynamic between racism and sexism. So, for instance, um, while uh, challenging black men 
in our own families and communities, we were also challenging the racist immigration laws that everybody was subject to. So, it, you know, all things were done at the same time. Yeah, it's it's really funny story. I was in a very small town in Portugal two years ago where I don't think anyone has ever been to Scott Evora and a small contemporary art gallery and one of the documentaries that were showing was called Sisters, which is a documentary that um, South Hall Black Sisters made in cooperation with a like, Swedish documentary maker. And that's how I how found out about South Hall Black Sisters and how... It is from London all the way to Portugal. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting how that like link was made. Um, I guess I want to ask you: What are there any iconic women in your life that you look up to throughout your activism? Well, I'm fortunate to be surrounded by amazing women. I don't call them icons because they're my friends. And you just never turn your friends into icons. It's a very dangerous thing to do. <laughs> we have to keep discussions open and, uh, and, and talk about them. Well, I want to talk about one of my friends who defended me when I challenged Amnesty International about their relationship with the jihadi that they treated as a human rights defender. He had, he'd had his rights very seriously violated. He was jailed in Guantanamo, but... He was still very actively supporting, uh, you know, he thought nostalgically about the Taliban in Afghanistan and so on. So he was not a, uh, a great guy in terms of his human rights, his own human rights record, and what he was recommending and, and inducting other young people into. Um, and there was a, a wonderful socialist feminist from America called Meredith Dax who supported me there. And she had been involved with you know, all sorts of movements, the early reproductive rights movement and various others. And she's now, we we, we set up something called the Center for Secu uh, Secular Space together. But now she's supporting uh, the Kurdish struggle, the women of Rojabab, who are trying to, in the middle of a war, trying to establish a space that is both feminist and actually anti-war, even though they're fighting a war, and uh, multicultural and multi-ethnic and... Uh, even treating the horrific prisoners of ISIS that they're holding uh, in better conditions than the Americans did with Guantanamo. You know, so they're trying to observe international humanitarian law, even though they have no status whatsoever, and they're attacked from all sides. So this is an amazing women's struggle that few people know about, where there's equal leadership of men and women, where there are cooperatives forming, where they're trying to survive in the hardest of hardest conditions and maintain their humanity at the same time. And Meredith in her 70s is, is an important voice in America to you know, pay attention to that. Yeah, wow. it's amazing. <laughs> So amazing, amazing. <laughs> My heart was just swooping. It's just so incredible. So um, incredible to hear about that. Very incredible. Um, I wanted to open it up um, to the rest of the room and just kind of ask everybody, you know, are there any political activists that have influenced us or our politics throughout our lives? I know, Fumbi, you had um, something to share here, if, I don't, if you don't mind if I come to you first. Yeah, um, definitely, it's fine. Um, well, uh, last year I watched a documentary about Winnie Mandela called Winnie. Um, so on that I knew very little about, uh, next to nothing, and I was blown away by how much she's been, uh, not only vilified, but like erased from the whole anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. And um, so I guess in terms of women activists, how she used her position as a mother and in this kind of like... We call it militant motherhood. Pe women who use their maternal instincts, looking after children after other women, to be quite 
gets violent in their in their position and how they um, they're a political activist and she was treated horribly through her time because she didn't she didn't um, just submit to the role of a woman being a peacemaker in war. She kind of fought out against that and she was jailed and imprisoned, but she was never in the limelight. She kind of was part of the grassroots movements in the townships and she was put in house arrest away from her political base and away from her um and away from where her home was and no one ever seemed to talk about her very much and because she didn't adhere to these stereotypes of women being peacemakers media just wasn't having it the government wasn't having it she was seen as a troublemaker and had all these radical socialist views that didn't really fit in with what um what Nelson Mandela was trying to do and yeah and, and this documentary kind of opened my eyes to that and I then started to think about more women activists and how they when they don't fit into that mold they're just discarded from history or just yeah criticized heavily um so she inspires me a lot wow um does anybody else have any political figures they want to talk about just say that um, when Gita was saying about it's been 70 years uh, that's so surprising because I feel like um, I'm a bit spoiled like I've, like I've been brought up in a world where it kind of like it feels like things have been not as much of a struggle before that so that's quite nice but also I think uh, we should carry on doing like you know the work that's being done so that awareness and like there's obviously so many things to kind of keep working on but it just feels like I feel like we're in a lucky time that it hasn't been as bad for us. Uh, Florence Nightingale. <laughs> I don't know. We always talk about her at school. So. That, that's, I think that's one of the problems. Like when you were talking, Gita, I was. I thought these are people who are doing incredible work. Like uh, who are who are doing things that are changing the world, and I haven't heard their names, and it's appalling. I'm so invested in in women's rights and in and in in all women having a like a, an important place in the world. And I hear about Florence Nightingale. I hear about, I don't know, Margaret Thatcher, who didn't even, you know, encourage a lot. Of, like, she isn't known for her track record in women's rights. She's just a woman in a place of power. And I, I, I think, I think that, that that's a huge problem. I mean, you're a, you work in, in history in how people are put on certain pedestals and other people aren't. And it's consistently oh, we've got one female figurehead here and she was a nurse in this war and that was great. That's not enough. Like, we, we need more. It's, yeah. it's not enough. But one of the reasons is that feminism is a leader, leader, leaderless movement mm -hmm. and many of the most media-friendly feminists are not part of that movement. What they are, they're big in the media, they wrote a book. I mean, great, mm. maybe they wrote a book that inspired people. That's wonderful. But the point is they're not part of that movement. I'm so glad you mentioned Sylvia Pankhurst because even in this anniversary of, you know, having looked last year at what happened with the suffragettes and who they were, Sylvia's not the one who gets mentioned. And she was a socialist. She was the anti-war uh, person. She was the one actually with the broadest politics uh, of all of them. And she's the one who gets forgotten. When you teach, so I teach a course on women's history and it's like 19th and 20th century British women's history and it becomes a history of ordinary women because you could pick up all of these, you could pick up female politicians, you could say, oh, Barbara Castle is a, you know, she was an important Labour Party politician. But again, you're just telling the story of these, like International Women's Day encourages us to think about exceptional women, mm. but actually exceptional women are, they're not, they're not representative stories and they're not necessarily the most inspiring things for ordinary women to think about actually what you want to know is how you know how does 51 percent of the population live their lives and that's the story that's often been omitted from history books as well like the 
that a, a course that focuses on women's history in Britain is seen as being specialist and, and sort of odd, whereas just British history, which might never mention a woman, mm. is seen as being completely normal and neutral and just a usual way of thinking about things. That's really interesting. And I guess like the kind of idea about um, learning about some learning about some uh, like figures in British politics, like Thatcher, for example, like mm. people talk about, oh, yes, feminism. We've had a, a female prime minister. But of course, like Too it's now. not about having just tokenistic <laughs> women in positions of power. It's about mm. what what do these people actually do for all women, for yeah. working class women, for black and ethnic or minority women, for disabled women? Like mm-hmm. if they're if there's no point in somebody being there, if they're just going to draw up, pull up the drawbridge behind them and mm-hmm. never actually talk about any issues that relate to women or um or women's issues. Or if to get to that place, they have to sort of emulate men as well. Um, yeah, perhaps needs to be. Which is again a, a punishable <laughs> sort of offence. At the same time, Charlotte and I were having a conversation on the phone the other day about this, weren't we? About mm. about the kind of need for women to um, emulate men, or we're told to emulate men in like professional settings, for example. But actually, if perhaps we did behave like men in an arrogant way, speaking over people and interrupting in meetings, so we'd probably be chastised for that. And maybe it's a good idea to start um, behaving in in traditionally feminine kind of ways. In inverted commas, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of the sort of famous women that I hear about are through like people's mothers or sisters. So I was watching a documentary about Fela Kuti and his mum sounds like an absolutely incredible person. But I had to watch a documentary about her son to find out about her. Yeah. Um, it's just it just. Can it, you tell us a bit about her? Yeah. So she she's a she's a, she's an activist. She was very um, work, like she was a teacher. She was uh, very invested in women's rights, uh, and she. Yeah, she was she was very well read, um, and so she she had done a lot of campaigning. Um, mm. Like I, I guess I mean a, a lot of and the but same. You had as, to get there through her son. Yeah, yeah. and it's the same with um, like Tupac as well. Like like the, I know I, I'm serious. There are a lot of like very significant music musical figures whose parents were activists, and uh, it feeds into their music, and it's incredible. Yeah. Um, but I have to hear about it through their famous mm. sons. Like it shouldn't be like this. Funny enough, we learned about um, Fela Kuti's mom in school, and the only thing that we learned was that she was the first woman in Nigeria to drive a car. <laughs> and we never learned about her. She was she started off this uh, massive women's um, trade movement, um, and that didn't get mentioned. I only learned about that recently as well. I'm from Nigeria, and we always learn about Fela Kuti and how he's amazing, but we never hear about um, his mom. So. Yeah, I should say her name, given that um, I keep referring to her. Familia Ransom Kuti, yeah. Yeah. Um, Nikki, did you have any... I know that you have been quite involved in environmental politics and I wondered if you had any inspiring women from the environmentalist movement that you wanted to talk about. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's so many inspiring women in the environmental movement. Um, I guess, like, more... there's, There's certain women that, through kind of reading reading what they've written and and listening to them speak i've learned a lot people like um vandana shiva who's an indian um scholar and activist and she's spoken a lot about like seed sovereignty um and food sovereignty and kind of um she very much like centers the role of of women in the environmental movement um and also um writers like Arundhati Roy, who most people know as the author of of The God of Small Things and other novels, but she's also written a lot about um, environmentalism. Um, So those kind of people have inspired me. But I would also say that, like, 
in terms of environmental environmentalism like women are always on the front lines of these struggles like women that we never hear anything about because like the majority of kind of um farmers in the world are women and women are always the ones that are defending the land and i mean there's amazing kind of um indigenous women environmental campaigners like um Berta Cáceres who was an indigenous um and environmentalist campaigner sorry activist from Honduras who was murdered in 2016 and there's been a lot of women like that who have been murdered for what they believe and murdered for defending the environment and so yeah I think in environmentalism there's just so many women that we never hear anything about that are really amazing and Soyla you had something I think I wanted to add on kind of maybe the women in the and campaigning for the environment. Um, one very young woman who's inspired me in just like very recently is um, a young lady called Greta Thunberg, who is um, a 16, 17 year old Swedish activist um, who started the international school strike movement. And, um, you know, she's someone who was invited to speak at. Um, the UN Climate Conference in um, December. She's someone who's spoken at the World Economic Forum. Um, and she has become a voice for young people to drive their um, consciousness around the climate crisis that we're in right now. And, um, you know, for someone who is so young um, to be so outspoken and to kind of be this figurehead and this this kind of very new modern icon I think is yeah, I'm very inspired by her and um, I, I you know I, I love the work that she's doing as well Is there a WhatsApp group? Well, where do you find these women? Uh? <laughs> is there a WhatsApp group? I wish I was in that WhatsApp group <laughs> But you've got an idea there <laughs> <laughs> Definitely um, Sadia, should we come to you next? Sure, why not? You are a stand-up comedian Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? I try and make people laugh. Um, sometimes, yeah, try not to make them cry, basically. No, I, I love to write and tell jokes. And I talk a lot about identity and uh, being British Asian. And I suppose uh, I've been described a bit as subversive because perhaps I don't live up to uh, a Muslim hijabi lady. In what sense? Um, being very horny, being very... <laughs> Just being quite fun and being myself and not being quite like restricted and not being quite repressed as people tell like, tell me that I am, which I, I don't know what that means, but yeah. Excellent. And um, and who did anyone inspire you particularly to get into comedy? Like, does your stand up set revolve around your identity in the sense that you're like uh, perhaps behaving in a way that people like would who would put you in a box don't think you're going to behave like? How? Um, honestly speaking, I think my biggest influences are like American black comedians like yeah. Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, and obviously Bill Hicks, Richard Pryor. So people who because there's always this thing that I've always remembered, which is politicians have to lie, but comedians have to tell the truth truth and it's um the best comedy comes from honesty so it's just about finding the truth and I always thought at the beginning that was quite an honest person but actually I think the more that you uh delve into things the more harder it is to actually be really honest with yourself about things so it's really character building but, uh, like the lineup you said they're all great I agree but they are a little bit sexist and they are all men like how is that like in terms of um how that draws you in comedy? Like, has there been any... Uh, to be honest with you, um, I feel like 
I feel like um, objectification works both ways. I want to objectify men just as well as they might want to objectify me. But I think on stage, I think the way that the, the artists that I've mentioned, I think that they're not terribly sexist, if that makes sense. And like we all have, um, I suppose, feelings about the opposite gender. Like sometimes like I'm like, men are trash. Da, da, da. So you kind of give as good as you get. That's equal opportunities, right? <laughs> <laughs> I get, yeah, She's not I get. Not going to take any shit from any of us. No, 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 no. <laughs> we apologise for this. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I think. Do Do you think? Do you think, Sadia, that women and um, and comedians of colour have a tougher time in the limelight, or or perhaps on the circuit when you're first starting out your career? Do you think? Have you felt any barriers in that sense? Um, okay, so t- I really think times have changed. I think initially there was this trope about women can't be funny, which is just getting really boring now, and I think it's so outdated, which is really refreshing. I think because I'm very niche, because I wear a headscarf, that almost takes away a little bit of my femininity, um, and you have to work with it. It can work for or against you. You have to just play with the cards that you're dealt. In terms of barriers, the only thing I would say is sometimes, you know, there might be only so many women that would be on the lineup so you'd feel like you're one of them rather than just one of the acts kind of thing but it's I think things are really improving and there's a lot of male allies who you can kind of really be honest to about how you're doing and uh, if you bombed for example oh you know they'll be quite sympathetic and like I think it's it's becoming a lot more of a, a team and kind of like collaboration if that's the word sorry. yeah I can totally imagine that I can see the kind of like stand up circuit being like that you all kind of because you all do the same gigs together and like kind yes. of look after each other it's nice it's like a like a family yeah um, Carmen mm, hello you are a playwright I am can, and among <laughs> other things obviously um, but could you tell us a little bit about what you do please yeah, so um, playwriting is actually quite lonely. I feel really, everyone's got all these like networks around them and they see people because you spend a lot of time by yourself sort of pretending um, that there's these people and writing about them. Uh, so um, I write plays and each, people ask um, the, the question sort of, oh, what are your plays like? Or what do you write about? And um, it's really hard to answer because every single play I've written has been really different. I haven't written that many, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, they take about a year and a half to write too. Wow. Um, so I've written about four full length plays. Um, and they've all been about different things. My first play, everyone's first play is about themselves or about something that's kind of from the heart. Um, and that play was called The House of My Father. And it was about, um, I grew up in Beirut and I'm half Lebanese. And it's kind of about that, I guess, and about the civil war and about the memories of that and um, it, what that kind of how you inherit those things. And then my second play was called Dubai Land. And that was about the um, sort of British expats in Dubai and the migrant labor force uh, from Southeast Asia and those worlds colliding and the sort of, I guess the politics around that mm. and the human rights. So it kind of was quite mm. political. Um, and then my third play, I thought, do you know what? I'm not going to write about the Middle East or about any of this because I felt I was being pigeonholed a bit. Um, so I wrote about Everest. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I wrote about a couple who climb up Everest and only one of them comes back. So I thought mm. I'd write a thriller, um, which sort of says something about um, our relationship with nature and how we sort of really glorify the conquest of nature and what that kind of, I guess there is a gender thing going on there, but it's not very obvious. In what sense? Um, well, I'll give the way the ending if I. Oh tell no! You. Yeah. Okay, we can't no, do that. I we guess it's, that. it's 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 sort of exploring um, betrayal and uh, promises and what people do under pressure and how sometimes we might expect certain things from certain genders, but mm. sort of explores how maybe it's not always the case. Can you say four plays? 
Totally. Oh yeah, I've recently written my first commission for the Kiln Theatre, uh, mm. formerly the Tricycle, uh, for their young company, which is 18 to 25 year olds. And um, the kind of remit was that there has to be uh, 12 parts. They have to be relatively equal, so no one kind of gets upset. Um, and uh, it has to be about Kilburn, so I was doing research um, into the local area. And the play starts in the 1700s uh, with the discovery of a holy well, and then it goes all the way through to the 60s, to 2003 three very specifically uh, and then to the 2030s but you can come and see it in April oh yes <laughs> yes you could, do you want to give us a little yeah, plug about well that? yeah it's called Let Kilburn Shake and based on the PJ Harvey album mm -hmm. so there's a bit nice. of PJ Harvey in there sung by young people so yeah. and at, at the Kiln Theatre in <laughs> at April at the Kiln Theatre in uh, Kilburn and uh, I can't remember the exact date that's really bad isn't it it's the week beginning the 8th of April. Oh, how exciting. <laughs> um, and you, you mentioned something a little bit just now about how you feel like you've been pigeonholed as a mm. writer. Um, could you just explain a bit about that? Um, well, I think the thing about writing is that you spend a lot of time by yourself, so the just in your own world so you sort of forget about the kind of gender politics you're like it's just me and my work and so it can when you go back out you're quite shocked by the things people say so someone wants um the play the first play was set in beirut um it was sort of set nowhere but it says in it it's set in beirut and they were like oh could you set it in gaza um and i was like well no it's a different country um, so i guess that was a misunderstanding of what my role as a playwright my role as a playwright is to tell a story um and to say something about the world we live in today um so that I, that was kind of quite shocking, and I get I get introduced as a Middle Eastern playwright, and I, I am and I'm not at the same time. I'm I'm half British, half Lebanese. I grew up in Beirut until I was about 18, so I am very Lebanese in that sense. But I'm also British, so people sort of choose what identity you are for you before you, before they ask you. Mm. Um, and then you know that I know we're talking about what it means to be a woman today, but you get asked sort of oh as a, as a female playwright. Mm. But I think because playwriting is so you are alone and you are in your world, you do forget that you're a woman sometimes. So, so someone reminds you. Yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it still quite a male-dominated a male um, profession, yeah. theatre and writing? It re I actually brought some stats because I think the theatre is, is a place that feels very feminine, I guess. I don't know, performing and sh mm. this kind of show and the, you see a lot of women on stage as actresses, but actually what's going behind the scenes is very different. And it's, it can be quite niche, so not a lot of people don't know about it, but... Um, female playwrights have a particularly difficult time um, and things are changing but it, when you actually look at the stats it's really difficult um, to accept because you're like oh wow actually it's not so just to, um, they've they kind of measured um, how many plays were written by women that were produced that were actually on stage mm. so and they don't do this very often so this is from 2003 but um, and also 2013 so in 2003 only 30% of plays produced in, in, in the UK um, were written by women, sort mm. of new plays, not, not, not dead writers, living writers. Mm. Um, the dead writers is even worse, obviously. But 30% <laughs> <laughs> of new plays uh, were produced by women. Uh, Ten years later, in 2013, you'd think there's been progress. 31% mm. of plays <laughs> what? Were, were, were written by <laughs> I women. Was not horrendous. That, that is not yeah. progress. And, 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 and just to give you a, a more recent stat, in 2018, uh, 2017 2018 season at the mm. National Theatre. Um, they do both um, dead playwrights and so I keep saying dead playwrights it's kind of weird <laughs> uh, and living and living playwrights and out of all the living playwrights that they produce and this is our national theatre only 28% of them 
were written by women. Just put in quotes. I don't care anymore. I know. Yeah. So it's. I think it's difficult because um, I think as a writer, you're not in the networks. You're not out there very often. You're very Mm. much at home or in your at your desk. So you. It's really difficult when people say, "Are there barriers?" Because you don't see them as often. People don't come up to you and say, "We're not putting that on because it's written by a woman." Yeah. It's. It's Mm. so much more in the background. So underground. Yeah. And it's. I think it's in people's consciousness, and I think it's how people approach work. So I. When you look at the stat, you think, "Oh." how am I going to get my play on? And But it's really hard to, to say who's refusing to put it on and why. Yeah. But the stats say it, So, but it's really hard to articulate. I, I don't know how many people have read my play, seen my name and thought... Uh, I don't know. Like it's, a, it's. I've read work, but especially when I was younger, and I, I know. So I know it happens because I've done it. Where I've read a play by a woman, and I've been slightly less impressed because they're a woman. When I was much younger, when I was a teenager, yeah. And I know. And if that's and now, I'm kind of awakened. But I know a lot of people out there do read work by women, and they they do sort of subconsciously have a different choice. And work by women is seen as very risky. It's seen as um, that it doesn't sell. Uh, that people don't really might not want to come and buy a ticket. Mm. Um, so there's a lot kind of against us, but it's all very, very quiet. And but then it background. plays in, it loops around mm. into if you get fewer commissions, then exactly. it impacts your self esteem, and then maybe write less. And so maybe fewer there are fewer plays. No, and I, and like, yeah. as, as a result, like we've lost work. Absolutely, and yeah. there's there's another um, issue with with female playwrights, especially quite young female players. So when when female players um, have sort of had this experience, especially in the last sort of 10, 15 years, where they write a play and they're quite young and it's really good. So people like Lucy Kirkwood and Lucy Preble um, and Anya Reese, and they write a play and everyone's so shocked that it's good because they're they're this young woman. And so they're kind of made into this star and things that are written about them in papers always come with a picture, whereas the men maybe not. And then suddenly no one's interested in their next play because there's another young woman. So it's it's it, there's also that mm. working against you. There's mm-hmm. two playwrights, Lucy Kirkwood and Lucy Preble, whose writing is very different and they're both very, very good playwrights. And people are always like, oh, the two Lucys, or they confuse <laughs> them. But there's loads of playwrights out there called David, David yeah, Hare, yeah. David Gray, who are huge, and no one confuses them. So you're up against, you're up against this sort of attitude that there can only be one or two of you. Mm. Yeah, you know, hundred percent. Um, I wanted to open the question up to the rest of the studio. So, does anyone have any iconic women who have inspired them in music, arts, literature? Do they want to have a little chat about that and and how you know how these women have been treated by the media and the public in particular. I love Amy Winehouse, I will say. I think she was like the best uh, artist of our time, just so talented and beyond her like years. And I think she was treated really badly by the media and it didn't help considering how young she was and what she was going through and the challenges that she was facing personally um, and also health-wise as well. So that's really sad and I think it kind of uh, hits home what you were saying as well about the way that women are depicted in media. It's always um, what's emphasizes what they're wearing and it's mm. brave that they're wearing that dress or something like that it's always aesthetics that's really brave and men aren't kind of uh, portrayed in that fashion that's quite frustrating i think mm. yeah 100 percent. i um, loved her too actually and mm. um i love her uh, and it was my son who one of my sons who first gave me a uh I was going to say tape, but whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, but, and I think it must be, you know, son of wild feminist women, because he said, this is mum's music you like. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And I did. Oh. <laughs> That's lovely. Um, did anyone else want to come? Um, well, just touching on playwrights again, mm. I think um, there's a playwright called Carol Churchill, who's mm. probably like the best 
a leading living playwright, a British playwright, and she's really incredible. Um, and I think the, the first female playwright I found about when I found out about because I didn't know people wrote plays. I thought it was just Shakespeare for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, was um, a woman called Sarah Kane, who's again quite famous. She tragically um, took her own life at 28, and the, the kind of she, her writing is great. It's so inspirational, but there was also this issue of everything being autobiographical about her. So anytime people mm. looked at her work, they were looking at the kind of the tragedy of this woman, you know, mm-hmm. a bit like um, Sylvia Plath as well, and that that kind of um, even Virginia Woolf, you know, this this kind of tragedy. Um, and I, that was, I guess, discovering Carol Churchill, who's actually really private and mm. and also is just probably the most phenomenal writer that ever lived and her work is what stands out and I think sometimes from a writing perspective it's quite refreshing to to have that kind of figure. Women always have the thing I think when they're creative it's always assumed to be autobiographical as well because women are assumed to only be able to represent themselves Mm. Um, whereas men are are, are, you know they can write about anything they can write any experience but women Nora Ephron had this this Mm. thing about um Whenever a woman writes something that draws on her own experience, it's always like a thinly disguised, her thinly disguised <laughs> novel about herself. And she said, you know, Philip Roth, who has just written the same novel 20 <laughs> times, and they're all about middle-aged academics trying to have sex with <laughs> 20-year-old Swedish students. But, but that's not thinly disguised, that's art. <laughs> but when women write stuff, it's always assumed mm-hmm. to be autobiographical, even if it isn't. Like, mm. My favourite my favorite writer at the moment is Sally Rooney. Mm. Um, and I got really frustrated. I've been really frustrated by the way men have read her work and have sort of said, she's a young woman, woman writing about young women for young women. Why is this book not for me? And the, the response from all of these male critics has been, I just can't identify with this oh, book. And it's like, well, Get a grip. I wonder Welcome what that you. feels like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Wow, that's incredible. I think just building on what you said about the public life and the private life and how women you just can't see people can't seem to move them away from their personal mm-hmm. life and what happens at yeah. home it's like they always feel like women should be writing about their private life and what they're going through and it's interestingly how B spoke about mm-hmm. Sarah Kane and Sylvia Plath, Sylvia Plath and Amy Winehouse women who have mm-hmm. struggled with mental issues and haven't had the space to deal with that because either with Amy Winehouse and media has just not given her privacy and then from there, that just changes our whole perspective of, of women in the arts and how maybe for men, we're so, it's easier to move, separate them from mm. their personal actions. And mm. always do, we, we can't, you know, the artist isn't the art, you know, they're different. But with women, it seems to just be one and the one, same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you can compare it to like the relationship between uh, Princess Kate and Princess Meghan, mm. like Marco, mm-hmm. like they're like it's always women against each other, and I think that's a sad thing. And I think that we've proven here there's so much solidarity between women, and that for some reason never gets the press yeah. like that we actually want good for one another and we're supporting each other. Like I've had loads of female mentors and support mm. uh, along the way, but it's always the rivalries that seem to make like clickbait. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah, the rivalries, all the tragedies, all this dreadful life, all the terrible choices a woman had to make, like, it's always kind of built up into this really kind of terrible story that people kind of, like, feed on, the media kind of feeds on it. Um, it can I just mention, I, yeah. there's a really uplifting group called the Nuran Sisters, mm-hmm. um, and they sing in a sort of Kowali tradition, so, you know, this is really well understood right across the whole you know, India, Pakistan, um, you know, because uh, they, they understand the languages and things. And so it, 
there are, I don't know, three or four of them. And they've really been nurtured to be mm. public performers. You know, in mm -hmm. societies where quite often women are discouraged from being public performers. And they do come to England sometimes. So look out for them, Noura and Sisters. Mm. You'll have the a Noura great time sisters. if you go to one oh, of their brilliant. concerts. Thanks for the suggestion. Mm. Um, and yeah, Soila, you have tattoos of iconic women, and so you want to talk about that. Yeah, so um, I have quite a few tattoos, and we mentioned Sylvia Plath, and I have a tattoo. Of, I'm afraid I've got a jumper on for <laughs> those in the room, so I can't show you, but um, I have a tattoo of Sylvia Plath, um, and my reason for that was because um, I think when we look at women and we look at women in art particularly and then we think oh you know this woman's a broken woman and her art, her art you know reflects that and Sylvia Plath who struggled immensely mm. with um, not only sexism but uh, you know really horrific mental illness um, and when at a time I felt like I was going through kind of similar things it, it she really resonated with me and her poetry and her stories and um, her struggle as you know you know dealing with mental illness as a mother as well um, and um, the uh, the kind of bit that I have um, so I've got the portrait of her but then there's um, the very last line in the last stanza of her poem Full Fathom Five which is um, about her relationship with her father but disguised in um, this kind of uh, talking about the Tempest by Shakespeare and um, I really liked I just really liked that element of it and um, I felt like it, it connected with me um, the, I have another woman who is tattooed on me um, and that's Frida Kahlo um, and um, my heritage is South American um, not Mexican but um, as I was growing up she was always this figure um, I was bullied a lot at school because we didn't know at the time I had polycystic ovary syndrome and a symptom of that is that you get um, hair growing on your face, it's a lot thicker and that kind of thing and I was bullied for that at school, I was bullied for my um, really thick eyebrows, I was bullied for my moustache which apparently is unnatural um, and so my parents were like hey there's this, there's this woman and she kind of she took pride in her hair and she used that as a you know her image and her the image of herself and she was also someone that struggled with um, profound disability and had to overcome that she was someone there's photos of her who are in 1920s Mexico and um, everyone's wearing their dresses and she's kind of a woman in this suit and um, I really really liked that image of her especially as someone who was at the time kind of exploring queerness and she was a queer woman and, and, all, and all of these things about her that really inspired me. Um, and I was thinking about it, tattooing in general is a very kind of male and white oriented industry. Um, but it's an industry that is built on the foundations of indigenous people and um, particularly kind of this distinction and we've, we've spoken about this before about women with tattoos um, and then this, you know, this seeming separation of people white people who have tattoos are you know it's it's cool and it's fine but people who have indigenous tattoos there's there's somehow a problem with that um and so i was thinking about it and i've been tattooed by more women um i don't know if that was a a judgment or a kind of a an open like kind of conscious yeah, yeah um but it was something that i've i was thinking about it for the show and was like oh actually i've had you know had tattoos by more women than men and um i think it's a an interesting industry it's it's one that definitely needs more women in it more people of color as as well but um but yeah i just that's a little i like to tattoo my icons um i've got lots of <laughs> tattoos of women quotes by women things like that 
um, no men. And um, I, I think <laughs> it will stay that way. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for that, Soida. Um, so we're coming up to almost rounding up time. So I just want to um, put out the final question to everybody. I know that some of us um, spoke to our mums or our sisters, family members and friends about who influenced them throughout their lives. And I wanted to just like talk a little bit about what we found out. So firstly, I'm just going to say um, something that my mum kind of talked to me about. So I um, had a long conversation with her on the phone a couple of days ago and she was saying to me that there were a lot of um, authors and um, who were, you know, saying pretty groundbreaking stuff about being a woman um, in the kind of like sef- second wave feminist movement that had never been said before and for the for her like people like Simone de Beauvoir were just very inspirational inspiring and also some of the MPs who had actually made a real difference to women's lives in the UK by doing things like introducing child benefit but she really wanted to like hammer home the point that um people that were influential for her in her life were actually the women that kind of made a difference to her you know whether it be like a teacher at school who like believed in her or someone um like managers in her job who like enabled her to do the amazing things that she did in her career um like people that took a chance on her and that kind of supported her to become you know she ended up being like a union rep for like the whole of the south of england and also like led a massive sex discrimination case which meant that all women in her position in the NHS actually got their pay um, risen to the equivalent of men's because wow. of because of the support that she got so That's she really amazing. wanted to, mm-hmm. to talk about that and how important it was for these ev- women that are in your everyday life that enable you to do the amazing things that you achieve um, so thanks mum for that. I think that's a, a real problem with pedestals I think like hearing a story like that that's huge and it's immediately affected so many people's lives when you pick one or two people it it sort of dimin- in a way, I don't know. That's a personal thing. But yeah. diminishes that sort of work that that really brings the solidarity that we all experience. That change and, yeah. in generations, actually. Like you get pinnacles and figureheads, but but that's the grassroots mm. of it, and that's changing. That's mm. cha- that's actually like affecting real change on an individual basis. Yeah, that's definitely. Incredible. And what 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 else did we find out from our conversations? My mum's proper eclectic, yeah, um, <laughs> and so she has like loads of female icons, like from Joan Collins, uh, <laughs> you know, watching Dynasty, Dynasty, whatever that was, and then loads of Bollywood actresses like Hema Marley and stuff. So it's really cool uh, tapping into some of her inspirations. Amazing. I think I had names like um, Marsha P. Johnson, who is. Um, an LGBT rights um, activist and um, is often kind of seen as the figurehead for, um, you know, for the pride movement. And um, so so she came up a lot. Um, and also kind of local, when I say local, I meant modern. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> where local came from. Um, but um, modern kind of women in journalism as well, actually. Um, I think it's, I don't all know what's the name, um, Mona Chalibi. Um, who is a data journalist who uh, talks oh, a gosh. lot? Is, is that with the drawings? Yeah, <gasps> she she I draws um, data, you know, yeah. data work, and and um, that was it. Kind a, of de, um, it makes it sort of. Um, I don't want to say more accessible because data is accessible, but, but demystified. No, data yeah, isn't accessible yeah. for those of us who don't it think it's it <laughs> and it makes it a little bit um, convivial. Mm. Which is so unusual for data. Her work is is just it's it incredible. Work. Changed yeah. the way that I saw what data did. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So they were they were two names that um, I mm. I got back for for inspirational one. Um, 
Um, my mum said, uh, first of all, her nana, who had two illegitimate children in the 1920s and refused to get married, wow. which was, to my mum, I think, quite inspirational. That is inspirational. Um, and is, like, she was a very, a very strong woman. Um, and my mum also said Claire Rayner, um, who was a, a kind of an agony aunt, but a sex education journalist, who, who really emphasised that you should listen to children, you should communicate with children, um, like, take children seriously... Um, and also apparently uh, showed you how to put a condom on before the watershed, which no. my mum, like... That's pretty groundbreaking. Yeah, my mum took the time to tell me she found this very inspirational. <laughs> so, um, but yeah. Was it a condom over the cucumber kind of job? Apparently yeah. it was a, a wooden phallus. Wow. A wooden so, phallus? Yeah, this all came out, this all came out in the conversation. Um, but she said, you know, like that kind of like really honest approach to child rearing, she thought was mm. inspirational. Oh, brilliant. My mum was always, um, it was uh, Annie Lennox. She was, wow. she was always talking yeah. about it from when I was very little. I just always remember, and I always associate Annie Lennox with my mum. She kind of looks a bit like her, actually. She's got the short hair and stuff. But Yeah, she does, um, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but she, she, I just remember she'd always just, when she, if she ever came on screen, she'd just be like, oh, look, look. Um, and isn't she amazing? And, and, and then who else? Oh, Stevie Nicks as well from Fleetwood mm. Mac. And she'd tell me about how sort of free they were and how they just did whatever they wanted. And mm. they've always stuck with me as sort of... Um, I guess what she thinks of when she looks for a mm. strong woman. Mm -hmm. Gita, I know you had some inspirational people that you wanted to talk about quickly. Well, my mum herself is pretty inspirational. <laughs> she's in her 90s, she's still writing. Yeah. She's criticising... Um, she's always written about... Uh, women's lives, what she says that her novels track the making of India as a modern state mm -hmm. and, um, you know, women getting divorced, uh, um, you know, things happening in their lives. And now she's talking about the unmaking of India, where we have a very right wing, um, uh, you know, pretty fascist government. Mm -hmm. um, and so she's uh, writing about that. But her big mentor was her dad. Um, I mean, she had a very powerful mother who, as I said, was, you know, part of uh, the Indian freedom movement and represented India abroad and so on, uh, who was an amazing woman, ended up as president, first woman president of the UN. But it was her father who really also stood shoulder to shoulder with his wife, um, died of his many imprisonments um, in jails, in jail under the British. Um, so died when she was very young. And she's always felt bereft by that. But he was a feminist. He marched with the suffragettes when he was in Britain and, uh, you know, never felt bad or criticized his wife for having, you know, for having given him three daughters and no sons and so on. Mm. He was amazing. But I actually want to talk about this man. I'm holding this up. He's called, known as Badshah Khan, Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan. He's a really important figure who's forgotten. Malala Yousafzai said he was a, an inspiration of hers. And anybody born in that region, in the Pashtun, Afghanistan region, or in fact, all over India, because he was a great figure in the freedom movement. He was a pacifist. He fought alongside Gandhi. He was a great supporter of women's emancipation. And he, when he died, he died when the war was going on between the Mujahideen and the Soviets. And the, all the warring parties stopped in respect for him. And we have to remember him now because Afghan women are fighting uh, under the hashtag that Afghan women will not go back because their rights are being sold up and a deal being stitched up between the Americans and the Taliban. And they're determined to stand against this. And, you know, this, this he is a figure who's inspired people right across this huge region. Wow. What an incredible note to end on. Um, 
Thank you so much, everybody, for your contributions. I'm afraid we've come to the end of the show. I could have gone on for another <laughs> hour. Um, uh, a massive thank you to wonderful producer and co-host Bumbi. Thank you very much for this fantastic idea of a show. Um, you have been listening to Very Loose Women live on Resonance 104.4 FM. Our podcast is acast.com slash verylooswomen and you can listen on the Apple and Google podcast and apps. And now Spotify as well. And now Spotify. Hey. Hello. Thanks for sorting that, Soy. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at VLW Radio and we're VLW Radio on Instagram too. On Facebook and in real life, we are Very Loose Women. We are going to play out to some voice clips we have gathered from friends and family about which iconic women have influenced them. Uh, just a little disclaimer, Leo is reading out her mum's words. Um, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, listeners. And thank you. you. It's been bloody excellent. Happy International Women's Day, everybody. Of the press exclusive for Very Loose Women this evening, I will be telling you who my female performance comedy icon is. And that would have to be Eddie Monsoon from AppFab. Now, this is the first time I really remember having agency over my own opinion. The first time at nine or ten where I was like, hey... I don't care if not everyone else likes this. I think this is hilarious. Uh, the character is a complete clown, is so um, uh, like over the top and outrageous and silly. And I loved the physical element of this one full grown woman constantly just like falling over and not being able to put things on. And the dynamic that the character has about the fact that she's the mother, but yet she acts like the child all the time. I loved, I loved that as a kid, just being like, <laughs> There's a fully grown woman being at like a total teenage nightmare, and I, I just adored that. And I think that um, it's just in, intrinsically affected me without in, even knowing. I think it's because I think I am her as well. Uh, yeah. The woman I admire would be my grandmother, who left the only home and family she knew at a young age, moved to another state, and got married to a man who was in the army. He eventually left her to marry another woman. And she raised five of her eight children all by herself, who have all grown to be successful, independent people, and has given me a very independent and strong mother, who I also admire. My grandmother, at the age of 85, is the strongest, most caring, most independent woman that I know, and I aspire to be like her one day. Who inspires me? More like I admire her. Adinika Ogundisi. She's hardworking, friendly, and bubbly, no, no airs about her. I would have to say Victoria Beckham, mainly because she's so unapologetically business savvy and has handled being in the spotlight through marriage and raising a family, despite other people trying to bring her down. She's terrifying, brilliant and down to earth all at the same time, uh, whilst also being a fashion icon for many. No wonder people are jealous of her. Um, Ursula K. Le Guin. Because she wrote a very, she's written many good books and the science fiction books, which is good because that's quite a male dominated field. And she manages to write very good things, but also very feminist things. So it's good that she can succeed in that field, but also bring her kind of like feminism and her, and being a woman with her when she does that. At the top of my list of really admirable women, I play Simone Weil. 
At 16, she, as well as her whole family, were deported to concentration camps in Nazi Germany. Only she and her two sisters survived. On her return to France, she studied to become a lawyer and then became an independent politician. Her career was known for her defense of women's rights, and in particular, she was responsible for legalizing abortion in France in the 70s. She made huge contributions to the human rights movement and was also elected the first president of the European Parliament. A strikingly beautiful woman of character and mother of three, for me, she is the embodiment of womanhood. A close family friend comes high on my list of admirable women too. Janetta, or JJ as we know her, is a real live muse. Her home, a creative inspiration to all that visit her. She would deny this, but if I were in charge of the honours list, she would definitely be on it. A woman that inspires me is Bibivio, who's an Italian Paralympic uh, fencing champion. And on top of her incredible accomplishments in sports, what really inspires me about her is her incredible positivity and constant positive outlook on life. So I think she's a great inspiration, not only for disabled people, not only for women, but really for everyone.